This podcast represents the views of the hosts and not the University of Texas at Austin. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with people who are shaping and have helped shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. I'm Bill Shute, Executive Director of the LBJ Washington Center, and I'm your host for this series as we hear from four Texas-based policy experts and historians who will frame today's political environment with the help of lessons learned in the past. Our final episode features a conversation with Dr. Will M. Bowden, who's the Executive Director of the William P. Clements Jr. Center for National Security at the LBJ School. Today, Will and I will be discussing his latest book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and the world on the brink. Thanks for joining me here, Will. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be with you. You know, I really enjoyed our conversation the other day at the Washington Center. But before we turn to that, I have a question for you about the man, President Reagan. He was known widely as the great communicator. Mm -hmm. Over the course of his eight years, what would you say was his most impactful speech? I think it would be his June of 1982 Westminster address. Uh, of course, there's many great speeches to pick from. You know, he uh, d- delivered so many I- iconic addresses. And we could do a whole series of uh, podcast episodes just just on those. But um, uh, I start my book with his Westminster address uh, because uh, there are a no- number of notable aspects of it that I'd like to highlight. The first is when considered in the context of the time, it's remarkably visionary. You know, you asked about his most impactful and enduring speech. I really, I really think it captures that because so much of the theme of that speech is the coming wave of democratization, the expansion of human freedom on you know every continent around the world. And we now know in hindsight that Reagan was correct about that, even somewhat pro- prophetic, but it didn't fully seem so at the time. At the time, it still seemed like authoritarianism was the dominant mode, that, that communism was uh, winning or at least gaining an edge in the Cold War, and that the only real models of government outside of Western Europe and North America were either left-wing authoritarianisms of the communist variety or right-wing authoritarianisms of the uh, you know, more you know military, milita- military dictatorships, as we saw in so many Asian countries and Latin American countries. And in that speech, Reagan really highlights uh, this the, this coming you know third way of democracy of self-government of of market economies uh, and uh, and people being able to choose their own leaders living under rule of law rather than rule of the fist or rule of the rule of the dictator and he doesn't just predict this will be happening but he makes it a very deliberate American policy to support and sustain this it's very clear that it's not to be imposed at gunpoint that was the problem with the authoritarian regimes as they are imposed at gunpoint he's got their very famous line of the speech, regimes planted by bayonets do not take root. Uh, But rather, this is about empowering citizens, uh, supporting activists and dissidents who want more voice in their government, who want more civil liberties, um, 
want more human rights grounded in, in human dignity. Uh, and he gives a speech, of course, in the context of the Cold War, and he's got some you know fierce denunciations of Soviet communism in there. But really, the more enduring parts of the speech, like I said, are that uh, prediction of the coming wave of freedom. And he puts the United States squarely on its side. And out of that speech comes the national the creation of the National Endowment for Democracy and a number of its affiliated organizations, such as the National Democratic Institute, uh, the International Republican Institute. So, uh, you know, we've just passed the four 40th anniversary of that speech. And I think it stands it, it stands the test of time very well. Great choice. I, I enjoyed that section of the book a lot. Well, it was a speech I wasn't that familiar with. Before joining LBJ, Will spent a number of years working at the State Department and on the National Security Council and Bush administration. Seems like a great background to talk about this book. Welcome, Will. Well, thank you. Great to be with you. You know, I truly enjoyed this read. It's a fascinating look at a man who, you know, for those of us of a certain generation who got first got the chance to vote during this period and then lived in the moment of these eight years, it was wonderful to come into this book to deal with some conceptions that had coming in. In fact, yeah, your book unveils a lot of uh, an image of the man that most people don't share. I would I venture to say mm -hmm. a lot of people may not share these days. But you talk about a man with a strong sense of purpose and a surprising amount of modest humility. Mm -hmm. You looked at his diaries. Mm -hmm. With so much written and said about the man over the years, was there one document or piece of information that really surprised you? Hmm. Boy, uh, do I have to distill it down to just one? So no, no, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, there were there were a few, and I'll I'll mention uh, some of the surprises and the documents in a second. But uh, to step back, one reason why I do think it is was a good time to write a book on Reagan's foreign policy. Uh, is I think we're in a unique moment uh, where several different uh, strains come together. Um, the first is just speaking as a historian and referencing the documents. Um, we work with archives. Historians work with the written records of of the past. That's our primary means of excavating the past and trying to recreate it. And even though Reagan left office over 30 years ago in January of 1989, it's only been the last 10 years or so that some of the most interesting, important documents from his administration have been declassified, uh, especially for people working on national security policy, like, like me. Uh, and so I was one of the first scholars able to you know, read a lot of these, you know, things like transcripts of his meetings with foreign heads of state, um, uh, transcripts of National Security Council meetings. Um, some of Reagan's, uh, some of the internal NSC staff memos to Reagan, where he's then writing, writing his responses and, and, and his thoughts. Uh, so that's one reason why it's just a really good time, I think, to take up a book like this is because the, the new availability of documents. But we're also recent enough uh, that quite a few people who worked for him are still alive and able to be interviewed. So if I was writing a book on a Blinken or Teddy Roosevelt, it would have been a different process. You know, none, of, none you know, none of their, their cabinet secretaries are are, are still alive, uh, and so I supplemented the documentary research with interviewing, you know, thirty or forty. You know, the names are all listed in the in the appendix. Uh, people who'd, who'd worked for President Reagan, uh, and was able to get some great stories from them, but also a number of other insights that you know supplemented what I was finding in, in the documents. Um, and then the 
Final part about the framing, and I'll come back to your question on the surprises in a second, but I wanted to give the context here, is we are now uh, far enough removed from the Reagan years uh, in the 1980s that we, we know how the story ends and we can uh, make our judgments on foreign policy during that time and its consequences with a little bit more critical distance. Uh, I won't say pure objectivity. None of us have pure, pure objectivity. We all have our biases we bring to something, but um, uh, we're somewhat somewhat removed from the partisan passions of the day. And as I tried to point out, you know, the 1980s where there were a lot of partisan passions. You know, he uh, some of those feelings have dissipated with the, with uh, the passing of time, but uh, there were big divisions uh, uh, within the Republican Party you know, similar today, between Republicans and Democrats, within the Democratic Party, within the American, within the American people. He was a very controversial figure. He was a very bold figure trying to do some new, you know, things and some very new things. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted, uh, but enough time has passed that a lot of those passions have cooled. Not all of them. People mm -hmm. still feel very strongly about these things, but um, it seemed time for a fairly fresh assessment. Um, so as to- If I could interject. Okay, yeah. Do you feel like people feel differently about that from the when you look at it, his domestic policies versus his foreign policies. Yeah, it's a good question, Bill. I can't speak to that as much, only because this book is only about his foreign policy, right. which had which was controversial enough, right? You know, I mean, aid, 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 aid to the Contras, a more confrontational posture towards the Soviet Soviet Union, uh, him trying to promote free trade in an era of fierce protectionism. I mean, all those things were yeah. So the, uh, so I just you know the book doesn't get into domestic policies. That said, um, those you know. His Domestic policies at the time were also were also controversial, um, but I, in my, you know, the lingering partisan passions that are there that I've encountered are usually among an older generation who remember those firsthand and feel strongly uh, one way or the other. I found that the younger generation who came of age after the Reagan years, uh, you know, they have varying assessments of what they know about him, but they they don't hold those as strongly as people who lived through it. Um, so yeah, um, but then sorry, not dodging your question on the surprises. Uh -huh. I'll 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 I'll, I'll, men I'll mention a couple. Boy, I mean, so many I could go. One is um, Reagan's very strong and sincere Christian faith. Uh, this is not something I was expecting to find. You know, he didn't really go to church much. Uh, he uh, he was um, you know somewhat eclectic in his uh, in his religious beliefs, but really comes out in his diaries, in his personal letters, uh, even his private meetings with his staff. Uh, very genuine, like I said, Christian faith. Um, you know, praying for Soviet leaders. Uh, trying to persuade Gorbachev to believe in God. One powerful moment is after Reagan is almost assassinated uh, in March of 1981, coming out of the Washington, uh, the Washington Hilton here, you know, just up uh, Connecticut Avenue. As he's lying on the operating table at George Washington Hospital, um, very near death, he prays uh, that God will forgive John Hinckley, the confused young man, in Reagan's words, who tried, tried to assassinate him. You'll, you'll remember that from the book, right? Uh, and and so, so the sincerity of his Christian faith is one. Uh, then another document that was, was surprising um, is about uh, U.S. Taiwan China policy, right? So 1982, Reagan spends a lot of time on Asia policy. Uh, he sees it as part of the broader Cold War framework. This has been less appreciated about his record. Uh, in 1982, uh, he was negotiating with the Chinese over uh, whether and how much the United States would continue selling arms to Taiwan. Uh, and uh, big divisions within his administration, as there had been in previous ones, over should we deepen our relationship with mainland China as a counter to the Soviet Union, or should we continue our partnership with Taiwan? Um, and Reagan worried that, rightly, that his Secretary of State, Al Haig, was uh, giving 
too many concessions to uh, communist China and leaving Taiwan in the lurch and going to cut off American arms sales. And so Reagan personally edits, kind of, you know, rewrites about a 20-page uh, densely worded uh, agreement with China over how many how many arms the United States will continue selling to Taiwan. He does this personally. Um, and again, this is it's a uh, a different picture than the caricature of him as being inattentive to details, right. only doing what his staff told him, so on and so forth. So seeing his personal attention on that was, was one of the surprises. So. Yeah, that's a great transition because so many of his foreign policy and national security initiatives mm -hmm. tend to presage and still resonate mm -hmm. in many aspects with global issues that we're dealing with today. Mm -hmm. um, from the unwinding of the Cold War mm -hmm. to the relations between the U.S. and Eastern Asia, mm -hmm. and you know, the really Middle East struggles, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I'd like to take each of those three mm -hmm. apart for a sec. Why was it unique that Reagan flipped the dialogue on mutual assured destruction? And what mm -hmm. was that impact? So, yeah, this is a uh, profoundly important part of his uh, his policy towards towards the Soviet Union. And to you know, give everyone the background. Uh, Throughout the Cold War, uh, from the very beginning, once the Soviets uh, acquired their first nuclear uh, nuclear weapon, of course, the United States had had ours. Uh, an arms race between the United States and Soviet Union had had taken off, where both sides were building more and bigger and better nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, nuclear bombs to be flown on our aircraft, uh, uh, missiles to be launched from from submarines, tactical uh, tactical nuclear devices, so on and so forth, and any of the, you know, these weapons together, even a small fraction of them could have destroyed, still could destroy the entire planet, right? I mean, so the stakes are just momentous. And the over time, a belief had developed uh, in Moscow and in Washington among the, you know, the uh, strategic uh, thinkers on both sides that what will keep the peace and stability in the Cold War is mutual assured destruction. The acronym is MAD, M-A-D, because it's quite literally MAD. And it's essentially uh, both sides having the equivalent of nuclear guns pointed at each other's head. So it's like, you know, I've got a pistol pointed at Bill's head, he's got a pistol pointed at my head. Uh, and what keeps him from pulling the trigger at me is the notion that if I see him start to pull the trigger, I will pull the trigger. Um, and now that's just a, a silly picture of the two of us sitting here, but imagine that with the Soviets having 40,000 nuclear warheads, the United States having about 30,000, you know, these are rough, rough approximations, uh, and the threat that if we uh, even detect that they are going to launch against us, we launch, we launch against them. Now that uh, had worked for a few decades in the perverse sense that Neither side had attacked each other, right? So, um, but when you think about it, that is a terribly reckless and risky thing to base stability and peace on. Uh, you know, first of all, it is, uh, you know, to, to make an official doctrine that we will, you know, incinerate 200 million Soviet citizens and, you know, anyone else living in it is it's just ghastly, right? And it's a violation of all the laws of war of, of not tar directly targeting civilians. Uh, but second of all, it relies on both sides to be cool, rational, to have uh, clear information and knowing what the other's intentions are. Well, what if you misunderstand something? What if you um, 
think the other side is about to launch at you because your radar is going off, but it just turns out to be a flock of Canadian geese flying over the Arctic Circle, uh, or, or a 747. Or a 747 when you think it's a, a military plane, or even sun rays bouncing off, uh, 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 you know, uh, ice caps at at the North Pole setting off radar. All those things we just mentioned are not hypotheticals. Those really happened multiple times during the Cold War of American or Soviet alarms being set off, thinking, oh wow, they're about to, they've just launched against us. We need to launch against them. And at the last second, people realize, you know, that was a mistake. It, it was a misperception. And so Reagan inherits this framework, and he thinks this is just madness. You know, it's quite literally madness, you know, this mutual assured destruction. Um, and so he tries to break out of that, uh, most notably in March of 1983 with his famous speech calling for that what becomes the Strategic Defense Initiative. And he said, you know, what if we base our policies uh, on trying to save lives instead of trying to kill them? Um, and so what he envisions is a, a missile shield, a, yeah, a miss, elaborate missile defense the United States would build that could, you know, shoot down or stop any incoming so Soviet, Soviet missiles and defend the United States and defend, defend our allies. Uh, now, for him, it's just a, a visionary notion. He knows that it will take decades to actually come into being if it, if it ever does. Uh, a lot of his critics say he's being delusional. Senator Ted Kennedy famously derides it as Star Wars, and that was not meant as a compliment. Um, so, uh, but, the, uh, but the key factor is that Mikhail Gorbachev and the Soviets worried that this could actually work. They were very um, uh, fascinated by America's technological edge and our, uh, our repeated patterns of, of in, in, innovation um, and using ingenuity for you know next generation advances in, in our weapon systems. If they thought if the Americans can get this, the, the game will be over. That will neutralize the Soviets' edge in missiles. But Reagan kept on trying to tell the Soviets, look, if we can develop this, we will share this with you. You know, we do not want to attack you and have a first strike advantage. We just want to make nuclear weapons obsolete. And he was very committed to abolishing all all, all nuclear weapons. Um, and that's something he and Gorbachev worked on and came came pretty close to doing. So for him, it wasn't just about tinkering at the edges with the uh, the strategic balance or arms control agreements is about transforming the entire strategic balance of the Cold War uh, by moving beyond that nuclear standoff of the balance of terror, as it was called. So his interest was basically throwing out the old playbook on detente. Exactly, yeah. It's interesting you brought up SDI because I did want to ask you a little bit about that. You've, you've talked about how we shouldn't easily dismiss it mm -hmm. for those reasons and others you just mm -hmm. stated. But what it was interesting to me was how often either the critics or the opponents would try to use both sides of an argument. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when Reagan announces S uh, SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, again in March of 1983, um, it is just, you know, it lands with a thunderclap, um, including on his own government, right? So uh, I paint the book, a picture in the book of Reagan as a strategic visionary overall, and I think that's, I think the evidence warrants that, but he was not a good manager. He was a pretty terrible manager. Uh, and this is why his administration, even more than most other White Houses, and I've worked in a White House was, you know, riven with feuds and backstabbing and leaking and acrimony and fierce policy differences. And knowing that a number of his uh, uh, top team would not like the SDI idea, Reagan kind of develops it in secret. So he works with a couple members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and his National Security Advisor, but he doesn't tell a few other people uh, that he's thinking about this, like, say, his Secretary of Defense, Cap Weinberger, or his Secretary of State, George Shultz. So they don't even find out that he's putting together this speech in this big proposal until like 24 hours before he's going to he's going to he's going to announce it um, and uh, so you know as I say in the book you know uh, don't don't 
try this at home, right? This is not necessarily the way you want to want to run a government of surprising your own government with this big, big new proposal. But he knew partly why he had not shared it with them is he was very determined to come out with it, and he knew that they were not going to like it. And he also knew that a lot of the rest of the um, arms control community was not going to like it. But as, as Bill points out, uh, some of the criticisms were rather in, inconsistent. So. Most uh, uh, scientists um, were very opposed to this because they thought it was a waste of money and it wouldn't work. Um, uh, the Federation of American Scientists, uh, of Atomic Scientists, you know, came out strong, strongly against it. This thing is delusional. It's not going to work. We'd rather spend that billions of dollars on, on something else. Most arms control experts strongly opposed it because they thought it would work. So for just the opposite reason, okay, we think this thing will, will work and we don't like it because we've lived with this balance of terror, this strategic stability that we think from having both sides afraid of the other one being able to launch an attack. And their thinking went, if and when the United States develops this missile shield, then that will make the United States impervious, protected from a Soviet attack, which means the United States would then be able to launch our own preemptive strike in the Soviet Union and incinerate them and kind of win the Cold War by destroying the Soviet Union, and that's very destabilizing, uh, knowing that the Soviets could not launch a, a counterstrike against us because we would shoot, shoot down their weapons. Um, now, within internally each of those criticisms uh, th those are serious people with serious concerns right I don't mean to be too too derisive of them um, but collectively uh, it amounted to just a lot of noise for Reagan because you know like I said some people say oh you can't do this because it'll never work others saying you can't do this precisely because it will because it will work um, and for him uh, even though his critics painted him as uh, you know deluded uh, on all this uh, he knew that the concept itself was very notional, that it would take decades uh, to come into operation if it ever actually would. Now, look, looking back, you know, we're, we're a few months away from the 40-year anniversary of him announcing this. You know, March of 2023 will be that. Uh, and if you look at Ukraine now shooting down 80% of the Russian missiles launched at it, if you look at Israel with Iron Dome and David Sling and other things shooting down like 99% of the Hezbollah and Hamas rockets against them, those technologies Technologies are derived very directly from Reagan's SDI vision. So, in that sense, he actually did get a lot of it right. It's still not, you know, did, that did not fully come, come into being the way that he had, he had hoped. Um, but in the 1980s, this was was still very, uh, uh, like I said, uh, aspirational. But the key factor for it, which Reagan always knew, wasn't so much will this work or not, will it come to operation, but do the Soviets think it'll work? And Gorbachev thought it would work. And Gorbachev was terrified of it. And we know this because if you read all the transcripts of every summit meeting Reagan had with Gorbachev, Gorbachev is just obsessed with SDI. He keeps bringing it up with Reagan, saying, you can't have that, don't do that, I don't want you to have that missile, you know, we're gonna smash your missile, you know. And Reagan is a pretty, you know, savvy negotiator, realized, all right, if the guy sitting across the table from me is terrified that this thing will work, in some ways, it doesn't matter if it actually will or not. All that matters is he thinks it will. And that, that's why it became a tremendous uh, point of strategic leverage. That's a great answer. Yeah. Shifting a little bit, what was his motivation behind wanting to improve relations with Japan? So, yeah, so uh, thank you for asking this one, Bill, because I one of the parts of the book that was most revelatory for me and most enjoyable to write about, which I just hadn't seen much in many other treatments of, of Reagan's foreign policy, is his overall Asia policy, especially the transformation that he leads in the U.S.-Japan relationship. Uh, and to set the scene uh, a little bit, you know, some of you of a certain vintage may remember some of this. You know, I was in junior high and high school at the time. Others, you know, this is ancient history. But uh, throughout the 1970s, as the Japanese economy boomed, 
the U.S.-Japan relationship, even though Japan was on paper a treaty ally of the United States, you know, we're not, you know, going to get in a shooting war with them. We'd already done that in, in World War II. Most Americans saw Japan as an economic rival uh, and a very predatory one at that. So uh, a lot of American manufacturing jobs were being lost to Jap Japan. You know, Japan was flooding the American market with consumer electronics and then these new Datsun and Toyota vehicles uh, that were uh, more fuel efficient and ran a lot better than most American jobs did, but it meant that you know Ford and GM and Chrysler are all losing manu manufacturing jobs in the in the the, the rust, rust Belt states. Um, and so most Americans, you know, when they look to Asia, they just see Japan as this predatory economic rival and not a real friend of the United States. Um, Meanwhile, uh, Reagan also inherited a new uh, framework uh, from on U.S.-China relations that Nixon and Kissinger and Ford and Carter had all developed, which is making China more of a strategic partner to help us counter the Soviet Union. Okay, so, so this is what Reagan inherits. And he wants to completely reverse this. He wants to transform the U.S.-Japan relationship from economic rivalry into strategic partnership. And he wants to rebalance U.S.-China relations where the U.S. Uh, 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 re affirms our commitment to Taiwan, which, you know, the, pre the, the previous three presidents were wanting to jettison Taiwan, and yet where Ch China is still a partner in countering the Soviets, but also one where he wants to nudge China towards economic and political reform. He even starts trying to encourage them to democratize all the things. So back to U.S.-Japan. Um, when Reagan comes into office, uh, he says very clearly, the U.S.-Japan relationship is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. Think about that for a second. Uh, Margaret Thatcher doesn't like that. You know, she's our most important ally in the UK. He says, hey, what, what about us? And he likes Thatcher, he likes the British, but he thinks Japan's more important. Um, he's also saying that US-Japan relations in some ways are even more important than US-Soviet relations, which is a rivalry, of course. And, um, uh, but, uh, but because Japan was the second largest economy in the world at the time, uh, because they were the only democracy in the Asia Pacific um, at, at the time, uh, well, certainly in Asia, you know, Australia and Japan are off on the corner, I suppose. Uh, Australia and New Zealand, of course, uh, Cal, but, um, but in, 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 all, in all of Asia. Um, and so uh, Reagan invests very deeply in U.S.-Japan relations. He meets with more Japanese officials throughout his presidency than the officials from any other country, you know, than more than more British officials and more, more Soviet officials. Um, and he, um, he, he's very committed to maintaining an open trading order. So even while he's pressuring Japan to open up its markets more and not be as protectionist, he's resisting strong pressures from the US Congress, Democrats and Republicans, to get into a real trade war with Japan, to sanction Japan, to slap more uh, tariffs on them. He doesn't think that's good for the American economy or for the Japanese economy. And here's the really important part. He wants Japan to start funding its own defense a lot more. Uh, they are free riding on the American defense umbrella. Uh, you know, as a treaty ally of ours, we were uh, obligated by law and policy to come to their defense if there was a war. And so Japan was devoting, you know, just pennies or a very few yen, a paltry amount of yen to its defense budget and relying, and like I said, uh, relying very much on the United States to, all, to do all the, all the burden sharing there. And so rather than humiliating Japan or threatening to sanction them or anything like that, Reagan hugs them. He embraces them, uh, the entire country, especially their prime minister, Yasuhiro Nakasone, who becomes his second closest friend in office next to Margaret Thatcher. So this is not just a, uh, a diplomatic partnership, it becomes a very close friendship. And over eight years, Reagan persuades Japan to triple its defense spending. 
triple it. I mean, this is an almost unprecedented increase during during peacetime. And he and they well, do also the, for a society that was very leery of building very leery of building military. Yeah, actually, because of because of post World War II. So Nakasone does this over tremendous domestic uh, op opposition. But Reagan very deeply committed to allies. Uh, he knows that you can get more out of from allies with uh, with you know honey rather than vinegar to use use the old expression. Uh, and so he coaxes them. Uh, he encourages them. Like I said, he's not threatening or, uh, or trying trying to humiliate them. And as Japan triples its defense spending, they they also commit to uh, their own extend their own nautical defense perimeter out a thousand miles, which means the American Seventh Fleet doesn't have to do so much to protect Japan anymore. And so now can do a lot more to counter the Soviets. And so it has a, a tremendous series of, uh, of benefits there. Uh, Japan also becomes a real partner in encouraging other Asian countries to democratize, such as South Korea, which transitions to democracy in 1987, or the Philippines, which does in 1986, or Taiwan, which actually undergoes its own transition from military dictatorship to democracy, with strong encouragement from Reagan, but also strong encouragement from Japan, saying, we don't want to be the only democracy in Asia anymore. We want more democracies here. We want to show that democracy is not inimical to Asian Asian values. Um, so it's a very important part of his legacy, this transformation in the U.S.-Japan relationship, getting Japan to carry its own uh, do, do, to carry its own weight as our ally, getting and it terrifies the Soviets too, right? They now see the world's second largest economy helping counter them in uh, in the the, the so Soviet Soviet Far East, um, and so it really expands the Cold War uh, chess, chessboard too. So anyway, I, obviously, I, I could go on about this, but it, it's uh, it's a it's one of the, his most consequential legacies and one that's just not been fully appreciated. It was, that, it was a fascinating section of the book and really mm -hmm. it threads throughout the entire book mm -hmm. because you're right there was such a change in the protectionist policies of the mm -hmm. previous administrations but that certainly promoted the Japanese economy in many ways mm -hmm. that started happening to us in the 80s and mm -hmm. 90s. Yeah, yeah. But Reagan is, as a, as a matter of conviction, very, uh, very devoted to and a strong believer in free markets, in an open trading order, and he showed real political courage with this. I mean, you know, if he wanted to cater to the political head, you know, if, uh, when wins at home, he would have been much more of a protectionist. But he didn't think it was right for the American economy or for the world economy. He thought it would be damaging to our, our alliance with Japan, um, and so he repeatedly tried to make the case to the American people: here's why free trade is good for our country and good and good. Good, good for the world. Um, even when all the polls showed that this this was a loser, and he won some and he lost some when it came down to the different congressional congressional votes. But um, it's it's an important case study in presidential leadership rather than presidential followership and catering to uh, you know the the fickle whims of public opinion. Well put. Turning to the third leg in that legacy stool I mentioned at the start, you talk about Reagan having a certain prescience. Mm -hmm about the growing threat of Islamic revolutionary ideology mm -hmm. after Anwar Sadat is assassinated. Mm -hmm. Looking back nearly 40 years, or 40 years, um, what's the significance of the moment in time that the Beirut bombings happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, boy, a lot there. Uh, and this is where a, an important point to bring out, looking at Reagan's Middle East policies overall and some of the antecedents in the 1980s to the what becomes the 9-11 era um, and, uh, and America's continuing challenges in the Middle East. Um, you've you know, certainly picked up by now that this book is overall a very favorable assessment of the Reagan record, and I, again, I stand by it. But I try to be 
fair and balanced and be critical where I think it's warranted. And his Middle East policy overall is not a success. Uh, and there's some you know, catastrophic fail failures there. I try to have some historical sympathy as far as what were the available options that he had, and none of them were good. Um, you know, they range from bad to awful, right? Um, but still, he gets a number, number of things wrong there. Uh, so he inherits a difficult hand. Uh, so 1979 is the Iranian Revolution, uh, the toppling of the, of the Shah and the replacement of it with the, the revolutionary regime led by Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, 1979 is also uh, the dawn of Sunni radicalism uh, with the seizure of the Grand Mosque in, uh, in, Saudi, Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, in, in Mecca by uh, Sunni, Sunni radicals. Um, and it's the, the dawn of you know what becomes the era of uh, of Islamic terrorism. You know Hezbollah is is for, first founded. I want to say in 1982. It's kind of a slow slow evolution there. And so Reagan's primary foreign policy concern, of course, is the Cold War and Soviet communism. But he's also having to manage this strange new uh, challenge, which is uh, of of Islamic radicalism, which has been very destabilizing in, in the Middle East. Uh, and so uh, and so when he uh, when Israel when the Lebanese civil war breaks out and then a few years later Israel invades Lebanon in 1982 to address the PLO and Palestinian terrorism against against Israel it just sets the entire region region aflame and Reagan is trying to figure out what what do I do about this he doesn't want there to be any further Soviet inroads in the, in the Middle East um, he had inherited some policy successes from Nixon and Kissinger and then Carter with Camp David as far as um, reducing Soviet influence in the Middle East and the, the peace treaty between uh, Egypt and Israel but every American uh, you know leader at the time, Democrats and Republicans, still worried about the Soviets returning to the Middle East in force. So he's got, he's, he's worried about that. But also there's just a lot of, you know, internal challenges and rifts and feuds within the Middle East that don't have anything to do with the Cold War. It's just, uh, you know, part of uh, some of the troubles of the region. So when he deploys U.S. Marines on a peacekeeping mission to, uh, to Beirut, um, in 1982 and continuing into 1983, the hope is that they can f preserve a fragile peace settlement of stopping uh, the Syrians from fueling the Lebanese civil war and then get the Israelis to with withdraw. So it's a you know complicated chessboard that he's that he's inheriting there. Um, but uh, meanwhile, Hezbollah and Shia radicalism, supported by Iran, this new regime in Iran, wants to further destabilize Lebanon, wants to treat it as an Iranian proxy uh, proxy state, and wants to get the wants to get the Marines out and. And so uh, in October of 1983, um, uh, Hezbollah terrorists launch a suicide truck bombing on the Marine barracks there and kill 241 American Marines and then another 60 or so French French peacekeepers. It's the Marines' single worst loss of uh, lo worst loss of life in a single day since Iwo Jima in World War II, and it's certainly the uh, worst loss of life overall for the United States since since the Vietnam War. Absolutely uh, traumatic. Um, uh, and uh, Reagan is, is horrified at this, his administration is horrified at this, but they're not sure what to do. They're very divided on should we retaliate or not. And some of them, such as Secretary of Defense Weinberger, say, look, we got to keep our eyes on the main goal here, which is countering the Soviets. We don't want to get sucked into another Middle East war, because if we retaliate, it'll start this retaliatory strike uh, cycle. And we're not even sure if we can identify who do we retaliate against. You know, right? The, the suicide bomber didn't leave a, a return address. Um, others, such as Secretary of State George Shultz, say, no, we need to, we, we should retaliate. National Security Advisor Bud McFarlane also says we should. Uh, Reagan is confused and, and waffles on this. Uh, there's still disputes about did he even want to retaliate or not, but ultimately, ultimately he doesn't. Um, and, uh, and interestingly, 
fast forwarding 15 years later when Osama bin Laden uh, issues his first fatwa against the United States, uh, I think in 1996, uh, he walks through about how the United States is a, is a weak power. Um, They're not respected in the Middle East because, and he lists a series of things showing American weakness. And one of those, when we killed their Marines in 1983, they did nothing about it. They didn't retaliate. So it, uh, it, it certainly is a, is a real blow to American credibility. Of course, a horrific loss of life. Yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah. It's not just his Middle East struggles that you're mm -hmm. honest about in the mm -hmm. book. Let's talk about what's widely viewed as the biggest scandal mm -hmm. of the Reagan years. Yeah. Tell us first about the approach that he and the administration took in Nicaragua and what they might have done differently with the Sandinistas. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we want to talk Iran-Contra itself there. We're just going to talk Central America first. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, Reagan's Central America policies overall, especially Nicaragua and El Salvador, are some of the most controversial parts of parts of his record um, and the ones that still inspire very heated passions today. Uh, just to give some, uh, some context, when he comes into office in January of 1981, um, it seems that the only two real options for governments in Central and South America are either right-wing military dictatorships, as you had in Argentina and Brazil and, and, and Chile, um, or left-wing revolutionary governments, as you had in Cuba, and then more recently in Grenada, and then Nicaragua with the Sandinista Revolution in 1979. And so he inherits a challenging hand there of, all right, what's the United States going to do? We don't want any further communist inroads in the in the region. Uh, you know, people continue to debate about how likely further communist inroads were. I think it was pretty likely. Uh, uh, it's it's clear now, uh, you know, with the end of the Cold War and the openings of a number of uh, uh, archival records from the Soviet former Soviet Union and, and Eastern Bloc that Soviet support for communism in the Western Hemisphere was uh, a lot more robust than uh, many people appreciated at the time. Um, some of these again are indigenous agrarian reform movements. I mean, some of it is that. Some of it is just civil wars, but certainly some of it is sponsored by. Uh, the Kremlin and then uh, Havana, the, the Cuban, Cuban regime as well. And so Reagan does not want to see, and his team don't want to see any further communist inroads in the region, nor by the way had the, had the Carter administration, right? Um, and so he, in some ways sees him inheriting, uh, the, the Nicaragua revolution had been a real shock to the Carter administration. The communist insurgency in El Salvador had been a real threat, uh, perceived by the Carter administration as a real, real threat as well. And so Reagan inherits from Carter, all right, you're gonna have some tough decisions here. How much do we support anti-communist forces in, in the region. Initially, Reagan's impulse is, well, let's just support the right-wing military governments because at least they're not communists. They're, they're, they're thugs, but they're not as bad as, uh, as, as com communist governments would, would be. Um, but then over the next couple of years, especially by not, even by 1982, he starts to realize that it is tarnishing America's moral capital if we're only supporting these right-wing military dictatorships. Um, and uh, he, he wants to build a more positive alternative of democracy, of market democracies. He doesn't want to be trapped in this paradigm of right-wing military dictatorship or left-wing com communist, di communist dictatorship. And he sees an initial opening there in El Salvador, actually, with the Christian Democrats who are trying to chart a third way between the right-wing uh, death squads and militias and then the, com the communist insurgency. 
But the Christian Democrats in El Salvador have a real challenge, which is that the communists that they are trying to fight against are being supported by the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua. So this is why. I know your question about the, the Contras here, but you need to understand all the context of how Reagan gets there. And Reagan realizes, all right, so this Sandinista regime is being supported by the Kremlin. Uh, uh, some years the Kremlin has given a billion dollars a year to the Sandinista regime. Funneling a lot of that through Cuba. Yeah, and funneling a lot of that through Cuba. And it's one thing if this is just a communist government in Nicaragua, but they are in turn trying to support communist insurgencies in Honduras and in Guatemala and especially in, in El Salvador. And so it looks very much like they're trying to spread communism through the hemisphere. And so he says, all right, well, what can we do? Well, there are these Contras who are fighting against the Sandinistas, and so let's go ahead and support them. And so he starts providing some initial support to them, first as a covert action by, by CIA. But then, of course, you need Congress to authorize and appropriate these things. And Congress is just very divided. Um, uh, uh, it's divided not just on partisan lines. There's a number of more hawkish conservative Democrats who want to support the Contras than other Democrats who don't. And there's more liberal, moderate Republicans who don't want to support the Contras too. So it's, it's, a, not a, it's a big division in Congress, not, not just on, on partisan lines. And, and Congress keeps going back and forth. It will provide Contra funding, and then it'll have another vote that restricts it or, cu or cu cuts it off. Uh, and it's an illustration of how, how and why the Founding Fathers put prim uh, primary responsibility for foreign policy with the President because uh, you really need one person at a time making these decisions. Foreign policy can't be done by a committee of 535. So wherever you come down in something like Contra Aid, no one will say, well, this is a good idea to have 535 members of Congress who keep changing their mind, changing the, changing, changing the policy too. Uh, so it's out of some uh, frustrations over Congress cutting off and restoring and cutting off and restoring the Contra Aid that um, the Reagan administration starts doing a couple things. One, they start asking other governments to support it. So the Saudis, they go to the Israelis, they go to Taiwan saying, hey, you know, you guys don't have quite the problems with the Congress that we do. Can you be providing some funding for these Contras? Um, and then a, a couple of freelancers in the Reagan administration, especially uh, John Poindexter, the National Security Advisor, and the rather infamous Ollie North on the NSC staff, said, all right, well, since Congress isn't giving us the money, meanwhile, we've been doing this side deal to sell arms to the Iranians to get hostages freed, and we're getting a lot of money from the Iranians, so let's just divert uh, we, uh, that, that money to support the Contras instead. Uh, and so that's where the, the Iran-Contra scandal, scandal comes from. It was literally the first scandal and oversight process that we were exposed to when we came to Washington. So it was mm -hmm. a very vivid memory of, of yeah. those moments. What is the lesson for following presidents? Mm. Oh, boy. Um, there, there are a lot of them. Um, and I, in the book, I try to uh, provide the context and explanation and background for the scandal, but you know, as Bill knows from having read it, I'm still very critical of Reagan and his, his team on this, uh, because I think they, they do break the law and they make some just appallingly bad, bad decisions. Uh, and I'll give a little more con context for that and then talk about what the, what, what the lessons are. Um, the first context, as I will say, as, a, as awful as it was, and he comes very close to getting impeached, uh, the presidency almost breaks, it humiliates the United States in the eyes of the world. This is the only major presidential scandal I have come across in history where all the main actors are doing it out of pure motives, okay? By which it's not a sex scandal, you know, no, no doing that. None of them are getting rich. It's not a financial scandal. It's not a political scandal along the lines of, say, Watergate, where you, you break into your rival's uh, campaign headquarters and you're doing all things like that. You break off of that. The, it is driven by two motives. Um, one is 
let's get a ro American hostages freed. Again, you know, whatever you may come down on what's actually done, and there's, they do some bad things here, I think we can all agree it's a better thing to get American hostages freed. Um, and the other motive is supporting people in Nicaragua who are fighting against an oppressive communist government that has destabilized the region. Again, you know, one can, you know, obviously debate the merits of the policy itself, but that is, that is the policy motive, is supporting anti-communism in, 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 in Nicaragua. But the means that they go about this are uh, stupid and illegal. You know, um, so by just trying to sell arms to the Iranians, uh, it's just incentivizing more hostage taking. It doesn't actually produce many hostage releases. And it goes against American law and American policy, which was don't sell arms to terrorist regimes, especially to Iran. <laughs> um, and you know, while we were pressuring our, our allies around the world, don't sell any arms to Iran, we were actually doing it, doing it ourselves. Um, and so, it, uh, and it's very clear Reagan knew about that and, author and authorized it. Um, the Contra part, uh, I'm pretty convinced Reagan didn't know about it. Um, he is still culpable as far as when you're a president, you're responsible for whatever happens on your watch. And he had set an environment of not paying attention to all the details on things and allowing a few of these rogue staff to, 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 run, to run free. But um, the, I looked into this extensively. You know, one can never really know for sure, but I just found absolutely no evidence that Reagan knew about that they were actually diverting funds, they're diverting these funds to the Contras. Um, again, it's, that's a, a damning indictment of him for not knowing what your own government is doing when you're the commander-in-chief, um, but it's a different uh, culpability than if he had actually known about it or, or, or author authorized it. So, um, But anyway, so the takeaways are, uh, first of all, presidents need to be very careful about the staff you hire and hold them accountable. If Jim Baker had still been chief of staff in the second term, Iran-Contra would not have happened. Baker was a very effective chief of staff. He ran a very orderly ship. He was very mindful of, of follow following the law. So, you know, be careful who you, who you hire. You're responsible for for the overall command environment that you create. And even if Congress has been very difficult to work with and being stupid and changing the law left and right, you still have to follow it. You still have to work with them rather than just trying to defy them because you get, you get fed up with them. So. Well, I have one more question, and then we'd like to invite questions from the audience, if you would. Yes, of All course. right. My final question for you. Yes. It's just announced that the federal budget deficit is now $249 billion, up from just a year ago, $191 billion. Now, each of the major parties has had a hand in that over the years, but mm. did Reagan set the modern standard of the Republican Party intent on rolling back spending while willing to live with such a debt burden? Mm. Yeah, Reagan bears some, uh, certainly some, responsi some responsibility for this. Um, I'll, I'll try to give a little more context to the answer. And of course, the caveat that even though I mentioned a few times in the book the, the deficit and then the growing national debt, you know, it's not a domestic policy book, it's not an economic policy book, it's, it's a foreign policy right. one. But um, when he comes into office, he is very committed to increasing American defense spending. Um, you know, he thought, I think rightly, that it, it had become way too depleted uh, in the 1970s under you know, the Democratic Congress and then under uh, Nixon and Ford and, and, and Carter. Um, but he also um, wants to uh, restore American economic growth. He wants to cut taxes, which had, you know, the top tax rate had gone up to like 70% at this point. Um, uh, and, and he wants to rein in gov gov government spending. Um, and uh, there's a certain... Uh, 
constitutional coherence to those as far as him seeing the responsibilities, the first constitutional responsibility provide for the common defense, you know, so there's a case to be made for a robust defense but, uh, budget, but then reducing spending in a number of other areas, especially the, you know, the entitlement state, uh, and, you know, minimizing the tax, tax burden on the American people. But uh, he then, uh, he, even though he has a Republican Senate, he has a Democratic House, uh, and of course Congress has the primary power, power of the purse, um, and so his hand is going to be somewhat constrained. He cannot unilaterally dictate economic policy, so he has to pick and choose. Where is he going to spend his political capital? How is he going to rack and stack his priorities, even if he's not getting everything he wants? He even says this in um, a meeting in 1981, after he's just been in office a couple months, he meets with the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Casaroli, and he says something like, you know, I've got a couple allergies. I'm, I'm allergic to Soviet communism, but I'm also allergic to runaway American government spending, and I'm having to decide how much do I um, devote to increasing the American defense budget, even if it means that I'm uh, you know, going to have to live with higher, higher, uh, higher, higher deficits and a growing national debt. So he's, he's mindful of that. And he also finds that when he submits his first domestic policy budget in 1981, that it's dead on arrival on the Hill. Uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, the Democratic leadership in the House, you know, Speaker Tip O'Neill says, Listen, we're not going to cut spending. This is off. You know, this is draconian. This is awful. We're just not going to do it. Um, and so Reagan has a choice. All right, does he do a you know national barnstorming and congressional lobbying campaign to to bring more spending discipline? Or does he devote his political capital to getting the defense budget increases through and the tax cuts through? And, and he makes those choices to focus on the tax cuts and, and the defense spending. So he doesn't like the deficits, but he, but he, he, learn, he learns to live with it. So. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that is a part of his legacy, which we're, we're still dealing with today. Although um, I don't think we can blame all that on him, even though by the standards of the day, they become pretty high. By our standards now, they're tiny yeah. <laughs> compared to what we're doing now. So yeah. yeah. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, we ask for you to please wait for the microphone so that we can all hear. There were uh, stories um, in Reagan's later years that with neurological problems and I think Alzheimer, I'm not sure, mm -hmm. that uh, Nancy Reagan actually had a role, I don't, you know, in, I don't know, foreign policy or something. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you came across that. And secondly, since you mentioned his faith in Christianity, one of the strongest proponents of atheism is his son, Ron Reagan Jr., mm -hmm. who still is doing these ads on TV saying atheism is, you know, religion is bad. Atheism. So that's really interesting that you brought that up. Mm -hmm. And kind of related to that was, um, you know, his daughter, I think his, her name was Patty or something? Patty Davis, yeah. Yeah, that she did this very provocative playboy nude thing that almost seemed to want to embarrass Reagan, and certainly did, I think, on Nancy. So I just wondered if you came across any of that during your... Yeah, uh, okay, a lot, lot, of, lot of things in there. I'll try to, try to take, take them in sequence. Uh, first, on um, Reagan's uh, mental faculties, especially in his last couple of years in office, uh, and then his later uh, Alzheimer's diagnosis. Um, I went in, I, I did my first research trip on this book 10 years ago, okay? So this was a, uh, what's not full-time project for 10 years, but I've been working on and living with this book for 10 years. And throughout the, the entire process, one of my open questions had been, uh, are there any signs of manifestation of Alzheimer's this last couple of years in, in office? Because um, he announced his diagnosis, I want to say in 1994, so you know about you know five six years after after the after the presidency ends. Um, first on that, uh, I, I'll give a pretty emphatic no. I did not see any evidence of Alzheimer's or dementia, or even early any early onset in in the course of my research. Um, 
Uh, and part of the evidence for that is, you know, when it really mattered, like, you know, reading the transcripts of his meetings with Gorbachev in 87 and, and 88, um, uh, he was still very much in command of the details, uh, had an almost photographic memory, you know, for uh, uh, whether it's, you know, his talking points or his speeches or the details he wanted to remember with Gorbachev. But you do see uh, the last two or three years in office a number of lapses where you know he'll he'll uh, he'll be in a meeting and he'll get flustered or he'll be you know kind of reading reading off his reading off his cue cards or he'll fall asleep in cabinet meetings. Um, and what accounts for that? I think it's very simple. It's almost like you know the answer is staring us in plain sight. He was the oldest president in history at the time. He was six or seven years into the hardest job in the world. And he was 77 years old. I mean, um, I think it was just sheer exhaustion, uh, and and, understa and understandably so. Um, and uh, his uh, he went through exhaustive and very detailed medical exams in 1990, 91, 92 as post president. Um, uh, a lot of these records are are there at the Reagan Reagan Library too. Uh, and the doctors gave him absolutely clean bill bills of health. They they, they would have in that mo I think those moments detected. Okay, wow, he's been having you know all. Alzheimer's for two or three years. That's why you really don't start to see the manifestations of it till late 92, early 93. Uh, and then, of course, he announces it in 94. It's uh, interesting you talk about Biden, mm -hmm. and I wonder if there are any comparisons yeah, potentially so. So, you know, Biden obviously has, has had his share of senior moments also, and I don't see any indication of Alzheimer's there. I think it's just the fact of being an old man in the hardest job in the world, right? I mean, um, I just turned 50, and I'm tired all the time, you know, I'm like, yeah, and I'm forgetting things, right? So what's your name again? Oh, it's, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. So anyway, so I, I, have, I have a decent amount of uh, sympathy. Sometimes the answer is just a much, much simpler one. Nancy's role, um, she was his, and this is a way to get into the question about his kids also. She was his closest friend in life by far. He did not have many close friends at all. He's the child of an alcoholic father, uh, grows up in a very dysfunctional home. Uh, uh, part of that accounts for, even though he has a warm and engaging personality, when it came to actually building deep personal relationships, uh, he did not do much of that over the course of his entire life. Um, and the one exception being Nancy. She's the one person I think that he allows into his interior world, which is mysterious for any, any of his biographers. Uh, she was fiercely loyal to him. She was very devoted to his public image and his legacy. Um, and she would certainly have her opinions on things like staff, on personnel, right? If, if you got crosswise with Nancy, you were not going to last long in your, in your job. But she rarely talked to him about policy issues. And when she did, he would pretty much say, you know, you know, in his little more diffident way, kind of remind her, I'm the American people elected me president, not not you. Um, and so she was excited when he started doing the summits with Gorbachev because she knows that this was good for his public image. But she's not the one who actually got him to start doing those. Those were decisions that he made and that were part of the, the broader Cold War context. Uh, uh, so his kids, um, uh, by most accounts, he just was a pretty neglectful father. Uh, outside of abuse or anything like that, but he had bad relationship with his kids because he just had not been very personally close to them. Uh, that in turn, I think, is partly a product of himself having grown up without a good relationship with, with his own father. Um, he was very personally grieved that his son Ron was an atheist. And this is where uh, the transcripts of Reagan's meetings with Gorbachev in Moscow in 1988 are fascinating because Reagan is trying to persuade Gorbachev to believe in God. Uh, he's also very sad that Gorbachev is an atheist. And Reagan becomes very personal with Gorbachev, and he says, my son Ron is an atheist. 
And it makes me very sad. You know, I worry about his soul. I worry that he's missing out on an important part of fulfillment and meaning in life. He even gives this corny uh, you know, anecdote. He says to Gorbachev, what I've always wanted to do for my son is have a gourmet chef uh, uh, prepare a wonderfully delicious meal for him and then have him eat the meal and appreciate the wonder of this, crea this, this, this artisanal uh, cuisine and then say to him, so Ron, you're telling me you don't believe that there was a cook? Um, and use that as an illustration of don't, why can't you believe in God? And, and Gorbachev is kind of flummoxed at this. Well, I, I suppose the answer is there is a cook, right? Um, but, but the point being, it's, you don't find this in, the, in most of the annals of American diplomacy of one American president sitting down with the head of a, another superpower uh, and trying to persuade that person to believe in God and sharing very personally about your sadness that your son is, is an atheist. And so it's, it's a, just, it, it's a it's very, like I said, I keep coming back to the word, word unique. It's a really interesting revelation into who Reagan was, what made him tick, the liabilities of his own uh, complicated and not very healthy personal family life, but also how his faith animated his approach to the Soviet Union and his friendship with Gorbachev. Hi, um, I'm curious if you could speak to one of the many things that were fascinating in the book I found was the relationship between Nixon and Reagan mm. and to the extent that the public was aware of that relationship and then if you could also maybe, um, I don't know if this would have come up in your research as well, but maybe the relationships between the secretaries of state, so Kissinger mm. and then Reagan secretaries of state, Dulles and um, and Schultz. Yeah, or uh, Hagen Schultz. Uh, sorry, yes. yes. Okay. And then aside from that, if you could speak to Suzanne Macy and then maybe any other trinkets of information about her um, and the influence she had on, on Reagan's understanding of the Soviet people. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot there, Maria. Okay, I'll try to do these, uh, do these briefly. And I want to actually start with the last one first, because in some ways it pivots off your question about Nancy Reagan. So, uh, you know, this being the 1980s, you know what, you know, 40, four decades ago, the Reagan administration, like the Carter administration, uh, you know, before it was very masculine, right? You know, there's, it's, it's a, essentially a bunch of men. But there are four women who are profoundly important in Reagan's life and, and his foreign policy. Um, the first lady being one, as I mentioned, not so much shaping the policy, but still uh, you can't understand his presidency without, without Nancy Reagan. The second one is Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, his ambassador to the United Nations, the first woman to hold that post, uh, first uh, UN ambassador to be able to, to cabinet rank as well, particularly in the first term. She's very influential on him, helping develop the Reagan doctrine of supporting these anti-communist forces, uh, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Soviets uh, in the UN Security Council after they shoot down Korean Airlines flight 007 and so forth. Um, so Kirk Patrick is also very important. The third, of course, is Margaret Thatcher, who is his closest friend among foreign leaders, uh, Nakasone being his second closest friend. And the four, and, and all of you would have presumably heard of those people. Those are all household names. Margaret Thatcher, Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, Nancy Reagan. The fourth one is much less so, Suzanne Massey. Most of you, unless you'd read the book, probably hadn't come across her. And she becomes one of Reagan's most important advisors on the Soviet Union, even though she's never working for him. She is a an author, an amateur historian who, um, had written a book called The Land of the Firebird, a history of Russia in the 18th and 19th centuries. And um, Bud McFarlane comes across her and introduces her to Reagan. And he, he invites her into the Oval Office uh, to sit down and you know, tell me your insights. Because Reagan hated Soviet communism, but he was fascinated by and had no hostility to the Russian people. He drew a very clear distinction between the historic country and civilization of Russia and this alien appendage oppressing it of Soviet communism. 
Um, and so she, Suzanne Massey, was his insight, his window into what the Russian people actually think. And because of her own work on Russian history, she was regularly welcome to visit the Soviet Union, meet with artists and writers and historians and students and scholars, even occasionally with Kremlin officials. And so she becomes this back-channel emissary for Reagan between the Soviet, Soviet, uh, Soviet officials uh, and, and, and him, and also you know, meets with him maybe a dozen times over the course of his presidency. And they also have lengthy exchanges of letters and so, so, so she becomes a really interesting advisor for him. And he's always asking her, uh, again, going back to the religion question, tell me about the spiritual hunger of the Russian people. You know, do they want to be going to church even though they're not allowed to? Do they want to believe in God even though they're not allowed to? What do they think of the United States? What do they think of their own government? How do they see what the Soviet uh, system has done to their historic and great civilization? Um, now, this drives a lot of his National Security Council staff nuts because she's not officially working for him. She's this outside advisor. She's got a direct line to the Oval Office. Um, Again, it's not great for interagency organization and the smooth workings of government. But when you're the president of the United States, you are looking for insight and ideas from anywhere you can get you, you can get them. And she becomes really important to him. Uh, then the, the the Nixon question. Um, Again, an entire book could be written on the Reagan-Nixon relationship. I try to weave it through here and there. It, again, it is absolutely fascinating. It goes in three phases. Um, the first is uh, for in the 60s and 70s, they are big rivals. Um, and, and it's especially interesting because they are so similar. They are both uh, born into poverty in the rural Midwest uh, with you know, abusive fathers and pious nurturing mothers. Uh, they both um, make their way as uh, relatively young to California for a new beginning, a fresh start, the land of opportunity, uh, the land of upward, upward mobility. They dominate Republican presidential politics for decades. So see me later for the details on this, but shorthand, every single presidential election from 1952 to 1988 either has a Nixon or Reagan running or is very strongly shaped by a Nixon or Reagan, all right? So for four decades, they are the dominant figures in Republican presidential politics, both as, both as Californians, interestingly. Um, and they're both, you know, hawkish cold warriors, so on and so forth. But they also are very, very, very different. And they are real political rivals in the 60s and 70s. Reagan challenges Nixon for the Republican nomination in 68. This is often forgotten. Uh, he then runs against Nixon in challenging Ford in 1976. He thinks Nixon has been too soft on the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, Reagan wants a more confrontational approach. He thinks Nixon is too, is too accommodating. Reagan represents the conservative insurgency Goldwater wing of the party. Nixon represents the more uh, establishment uh, Rockefeller-Nixon uh, wing of the party. On Asia, they're very different. Uh, they, as Californians, they both have, have a very Pacific-mindedness, right? So they, they look west across the Pacific. But when Nixon looks west across the Pacific, he sees the key to Asia is China. When Reagan looks west across the Pacific, he sees the key to Asia is Japan. Uh, and you know, I, I talk, talked about that more earlier. Uh, so they're real rivals. Second phase, once Reagan actually wins the presidency, Nixon is living in disgrace in an apartment in New York uh, after, after, after Watergate's kind of exiled up there. Um, and Nixon starts this really interesting outreach. He starts writing these all, you know, regular letters to, to Reagan and to Reagan's senior team. He's giving political advice. He's giving policy advice. He's giving advice on personnel. And Reagan starts really taking this seriously. Even though he's very different from, uh, from Nixon, he has high regard for Nixon's intellect. And here's a key thing. Nixon, at the time, is one of only three people on planet Earth who is alive and knows what it means to be the President of the United States. 
The other two are Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. Uh, and so Reagan, even if he's going to disagree with Nixon and things, he's going to take him seriously because he's one of the only three people who knows what it means to be to have the responsibilities that Reagan has now. And so this starts a real reconciliation between the two. Um, Nixon starts doing some back-channel diplomacy for Reagan with China and even with Gorbachev and the, and the Soviet Union. Uh, helps pave the way for a couple of their main their main uh, summit meetings. Um, uh, he gives Nick Reagan some bad personnel advice when he tells him hire Al Haig as your Secretary of State. Reagan comes to regret that, but he gives some good advice too, and he says Cap Weinberger would be a good Secretary of Defense uh, and some and some some others there. The third phase, though, is this reconciliation kind of culminates, uh, I can't remember the exact date, but it's late 86, early 87, I think it's early 87, when Reagan invites Nixon to the, uh, to the White House. This is Nixon's first time setting foot back in the White House in 13 years, after being exiled and disgraced from uh, resigning uh, from, from Watergate. Um, and. Um, and they have a, they, they, they're talking about uh, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, Nixon kept a careful transcript of the meeting, but especially uh, arms control and Reagan's burgeoning partnership with Gorbachev. And this is where they, they, they then have a rift. They have a falling out because Reagan wants to do the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, banning an entire class of nuclear weapons, all intermediate range nuclear missiles. Uh, Gorbachev is coming along in this. Nixon, for some complicated arms control reasons, opposes the treaty. And it's one thing for Nixon to privately oppose it, say, you know, Mr. President, Ron, I don't think you should do this. But Nixon comes out publicly against it. He starts lobbying the Senate not to ratify it. He and Kissinger write like a 4,000-word article in Newsweek magazine saying this is a bad idea, we shouldn't do it. And Reagan just feels very undercut and personally betrayed. Uh, and Reagan had this kind of strong sense of decorum that ex-presidents should not undermine current presidents. Jimmy Carter, incidentally, was doing some of the same stuff with Reagan, which drove, drove him crazy as well. Uh, and so uh, that causes a new rift, the third phase of the relationship, where Reagan uh, is, is very mad at Nixon, feels really undercut by him. Um, so. And with that, thank you for being here. And thank you, Will. It's been an enjoyable conversation. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been a great discussion. Enjoyed it. Thank you. You know, while he was a remarkable evangelist for a better world, you mentioned that his management style was often challenged. Mm -hmm. I think in the book you stated that the Reagan doctrine of confronting Soviet expansion in volatile countries was supported by all of his top principles, even while they bickered fiercely over the details. Tell us more about the struggles his administration faced due to internal staff conflicts. Yeah. Yes, and this is one of the paradoxes for anyone studying the Reagan administration, as well as you know those who worked in it and lived through it, which is, I think uh, we can point to a number of strategic and policy successes from the administration, but at the same time, uh, there was quite a bit of organizational dysfunction. And uh, it's not normally what you would see in a uh, public management textbook, right? You know, usually our presumptions are if you have good management organization, that'll be more likely to lead to good policy outcomes. In this case, you get some good policy outcomes, but without, uh, you know, with, without that uh, smooth functioning management and, and organization. Some of it comes from um, Reagan picked a number of very capable, hard charging, uh, self-confident uh, people for uh, the key cabinet positions and advisory positions in his administration, certainly on the national security side, which I'm, I'm most familiar with. Uh, but 
you know, with capable, strong, hard-charging, opinionated uh, people, you're also going to get uh, real, real differences. You know, each of them, you know, wanted to have his way. Usually, these were men, although some notable exceptions, such as Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, the first woman to be ambassador to the United Nations. So that right there is the beginning of a, a recipe for some volatility and difference. Uh, then. Added to that is Reagan, for all of his strategic vision, uh, just was uh, not very interested or attentive to the details of, of management. Um, he was rather conflict averse. And so if you know, his Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense were feuding, as they often were, that was almost the constant state of things, uh, he would not step in and crack heads and you know, force them both, force them both to get in line. He would let those things fester. He wanted to keep his own good relations with with, with each of them. Uh, now, at times, uh, uh, he was able to delegate the management. So, for example, his first term, uh, Jim Baker was his chief of staff, still widely regarded as the most uh, successful and accomplished uh, White House chief of staff in history. And so having a strong manager like Baker as a surrogate uh, helped ameliorate some of Reagan's uh, management deficiencies. But in his second term, when he had less capable chiefs of staff, such as Don Don Regan, that's partly why you get some pretty big problems uh, uh, with even more interagency feuding and bickering, and then a scandal like the like the Iran Iran Contra scandal, but it also bears noting that. Uh, on the really big picture, uh, important issues of top priority to Reagan, such as his management of uh, U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union. When it mattered, he would step in and make the decisions. He was the commander in chief. Uh, he would take sides. Uh, we see this especially in his second term when he really empowers George Shultz as his secretary of state uh, for their two-pronged approach of pressure uh, on the Soviets, uh, Soviet system and outreach and diplomacy with, with Soviet leaders. Uh, so that was one way that he was able to comp compensate for some of these deficiencies. Well put. And finally, his second inaugural speech proclaimed his hope that one day his time in office would be remembered as a time when America courageously supported the struggle for individual liberty, self-government, and free enterprise throughout the world, and turned the tide of history away from totalitarian darkness and into the warm sunlight of human freedom. Have we lived up to that? Yeah. Well, I think President Reagan certainly did. Uh, you know, I'll just say that obviously that's very lofty, ambitious rhetoric there. But, you know, the results speak for themselves uh, from the time that he takes office to, you know, 10 years later, a year or two after he leaves office, the, the number of electoral democracies in the world almost doubles. And these are all all entirely peaceful transitions, right? This is not through a series of violent wars. Uh, so you've got South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines transitioning to democracy in Asia. You've got Chile, Argentina, Brazil, other Latin American countries transitioning. Of course, shortly after he leaves office, uh, the Iron Curtain comes down peacefully. The Warsaw Pact collapses. The Berlin Wall is is torn down by the people of of Berlin, and you've got you know the tremendous wave of uh, you know free free governments, free societies emerging in Central and East and Eastern Europe. Um, and along uh, along with that, you have you know the growing embrace of free market reforms, of an open an open trading order. You know, Reagan is the first president to envision. The North American Free Trade uh, Agreement, NAFTA, um, and 
Uh, he also lays, you know, quite a bit of the foundation for the growth of economic liberty and open trade in Asia, Latin America, Latin America, and Europe. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I I do think that at least in terms of his own legacy, um, he 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 kept his part of the bargain. There is there is president, uh, and you know, since then, uh, I think there's been something of a regression. Uh, you know, over the last 15 years, um, democracy has continued to be backsliding around the world. We've also seen uh, you know, upsurges in in protectionism, um, still the resilience of some uh, socialist uh, economies, you know, Cuba and Venezuela in our and now Nicaragua again in our own in our own hemisphere. Uh, of course, the resilience of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so. It's not a utopian dream where all those uh, ills have been ills have been vanquished. But by and large, uh, judging a president just by what was the state of the world and the state of the country when he took office, and then what's the state of the world and the state of the country when he leaves office, and in the you know the immediate months and years afterwards, I think it's a pretty favorable record. Uh, Will, it's been a pleasure to chat with you, and I enjoyed our talk at the Washington Center recently. Again, the book is the Peacemaker. Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink. And thank you for joining us. For more insightful episodes of Policy on Purpose, please visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.